church family, I'll invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3 is where we'll be this morning. Um, for those that were here Wednesday night, somebody asked me about, several people asked me about, you know, what will our snow plan be as we were anticipating it? And I said this, I said, you know, if I can get here, this is the general rule, if I can get here, I'm going to come here on Sunday morning and preach. That's what the Lord's called me to do. And if our media folks can get here, we'll put it online. And so I woke up yesterday morning and saw how much snow we thought, and I started having flashbacks of spring of 2020, thinking, man, I am going to be preaching to myself again. Uh, so I am glad, thank you to those of you that are in the room with us. It makes me feel a lot better to not have to preach to uh, an empty room. So we're grateful that the sun came out yesterday afternoon and made it to where at least some of our folks could be here. And I know that uh, numerous families are joining us on one or, one or more of our streaming platforms this morning. Uh, so welcome to you, and we're glad that you're able to join us uh, from your living room, and we hope to be able to see you uh, back with us uh, next uh, Sunday as we gather for worship together. Um, before we stand and read, I want to remind you of where we are in our process of uh, searching for and hiring a pastor for adult discipleship and outreach. Last week, we announced our candidate for that position, uh, Jadrian Haywood and his family to you. There is information on the back tables and at the information desk in the lobby uh, about Jadrian. It tells you about uh, what he's done, kind of a little bit of a resume piece. It gives his testimony, call to ministry, and then some questions that he answered, lots and lots of questions for us, and we don't, we're not going to publish all of those. It'd be too much, but we wanted to give you some information about about um, important item, important components of uh, adult discipleship, uh, of outreach, of assimilation, because he's going to oversee those areas uh, pastorally in our church. And so if you've not grabbed one of those, grab one of those on your way out today. And for those of, uh, those of you that are with us online, um, we could email one of those to you or they will be here uh, for the next couple of weeks as you make your way back uh, here in person to church with us. And then Jadrian will teach on February the 2nd on that Wednesday night uh, in uh, my place. I will be here, but he will be teaching and he's going to talk about his heart for discipleship and outreach and where uh, that ministry in the local church finds its place in the scripture. And we want to give you the opportunity to hear him teach. We will live stream that like we do our other Wednesday nights. And then he will be here on February the 13th, briefly share during that Sunday morning and we will vote. Oh, and before that, we will also have on February the 6th an opportunity uh, for you as the congregation to gather with him at four o'clock in here to ask any questions that you want to ask because we want you to be able to feel like you've had the opportunity to vet him as we have had extensive opportunity as elders and our advisory panel to do so. And here's what I know, you're going to love him and his family. And uh, we look forward to uh, confirming that recommendation together then on February 13th. All right. Now, if you'll stand with me, because this is 30 verses, we're not going to read them all, but I do want to read the first seven this morning to set the scene here in Daniel chapter three. This is the word of the Lord. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the, uh, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the council, uh, counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O people, nations and languages, 
that when you hear the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the people, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that even in the midst of wintry weather, we can gather together as your church, worship you, make our petitions through prayer made known to you, and study your word together. Father, as we enter this time of the proclaimed word, would you pierce our hearts with this familiar story? Would you help us, God, in a world that demands idolatry? Would you help us to stand fast and firm, trusting in you, no matter the pressure, no matter the consequences we ask. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Daniel chapter 3 is, for many probably in this room, a very familiar story. We would refer to it as the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or maybe the story of the fiery furnace. It is a story that we teach our children early as we raise them in the Lord. It's often a story of vacation Bible school or Sunday school. And it's one that shows us very clearly how the people of God are intended to stand firm in the face of demanding idolatry. That no matter the pressures that come upon us from the world, to worship like the world, to think like the world, to act like the world, we, the people of God, are to follow in the example of these three young men who rejected that pressure, to the point of impending death because out of obedience to the Lord. So while this may be familiar to many, I recognize there may be some here today or watching with us online that this is a new story for you. Maybe you have never heard this or read this. So whichever it is for you, maybe if it's new to you or if this seems kind of old hat, I will say, let's go to the text. I have dwelt in this text all week, and it has challenged me immensely. A story that I have known for decades challenged me immensely. So I have thought about this very question. Would I have had this kind of courage? Would our church, corporately, have had this kind of courage that this small and yet corporate body of young believers practices in the face of demanding idolatry. No, there will likely not be a golden statue set up anytime soon in our own culture. But don't imagine for one minute that that is the only kind of idolatry that our world invites us to and then eventually demands us to join in with. So let's see. First, the worldly demand of idolatry. This is a story of progression. It's written 
very well. It's, it's written in, a, in such a way that you are intended as the reader to see one step after another, how the pressure mounts and rises to its climax of the doors of the fiery furnace. And here's where it begins. It begins with Nebuchadnezzar twisting God's design into idolatry. We have already read there the first three verses that introduced this idea to us. That Nebuchadnezzar erects a statue, an image. We're not told what the image is, what the image is of, although just about every any uh, drawing, painting, uh, description of this always has this as Nebuchadnezzar himself. That this is his image, and that's very likely so. And then this image is, this statue is 90 feet tall. That's what it means when it's 60 cubits tall, and the breadth is six cubits. If you've ever wondered what a cubit is, it's from here to here. That's, that's what a cubit is, right? So for mo- in most cases, about 18 inches. But can you imagine, I know there's some builders in the room. Could you imagine if everybody is measuring in that way? It'd be kind of... Everything would be different, right? But that's, that's what a cubit was in the ancient world. And so we're talking about somewhere in the neighborhood of nine stories. This is a massive statue. If you go to the end of uh, Shoulders Hill Road into the industrial park there where Amazon has built their new building, the largest industrial building outside of the Pentagon in the state of Virginia, it's only 80 feet tall. This, this, is, this is big. And he builds it in the province of Babylon. So this is in a place that everybody's going to be able to see it and it is solid or at least the outside of it is all gold. Now, why does that matter? Well, it matters because of what God had already revealed in Daniel chapter two in a dream to Nebuchadnezzar and then in a vision to Daniel to be able to interpret that dream is that Nebuchadnezzar had seen an image, a statue. And it was not all gold. It was partially gold at the head. It was partially silver and bronze and iron and then iron mixed with clay, representing what God was going to do in the kingdoms of the world over the course of the next several centuries. And what is it that Daniel had revealed to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2? That Nebuchadnezzar was represented in the golden head of the image. That he was the golden head, but that his kingdom would not last forever, but would eventually pass away. And what Nebuchadnezzar does is he takes the vision from the Lord and twists it. That original statue was only partially gold, representing Nebuchadnezzar's reign and rule and kingdom. But this statue is entirely made of gold. Here's the way that we are intended to read this. This is Nebuchadnezzar unapologetically declaring that his kingdom will have no end. He is standing in the face of God's vision and saying, you are wrong. He sees himself as the greatest king ruling in the greatest empire that will know no end. End. And so he erects the, the statue from his vision, but with one major change, it all represents him. It's all intended to point to him. And then what does he do here? He calls together the governor, the prefects, the satraps, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and they list these people twice. Why do they list these people twice? To ensure that we know as the readers that everyone was given instructions here. He sent word to all of these people, and then in verse 3, all of these people come. 
that everybody in any position of authority knew what Nebuchadnezzar was setting up there. That he was erecting a statue that everyone would be required to bow down to. And this statue, again, is a twisted version of what God has said. And this is what the world does when the world embraces idolatry. The world takes that which God has made or which God has envisioned and twists it to their own liking. Paul writes of this in Romans chapter 1. He says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is what the world does. It's what Nebuchadnezzar does. He has a vision from the one true God that a prophet of the one true God is able to tell him what that vision was and what that vision meant, and yet he still rejects God and takes that image that God had given him and twists it for his own way of thinking. The world worships that which God made, twisted into its own desires. It's what Nebuchadnezzar does. It's what Paul writes about in Romans 1, looking back over the course of human history. And it is still today what people do. This is the definition of idolatry. It is taking that which God has made or which God has said and making it into our own image. And that is step one. And Nebuchadnezzar has fulfilled that. Then there's demanding participation in idolatry. Look at verses 4 through 7. What does he do in these verses that we read at the beginning of the sermon? He calls everybody, the herald calls everybody, all of the people, nations, and languages. Another list here in term, intended to say that this is for everyone. The ruling class now knows about it, right? All of the people in charge now know about it, and it's going to filter down into everyone. No one is going to be excluded from this command. Eventually, What happens in Daniel 3 happens in every culture that demands idolatry throughout history. A culture's favored idol becomes an expectation for all people. And that's what happens here in this second section of Daniel 3. There is now a command that when you hear the music, the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, every kind of music. All the people, nations, and languages are commanded to fall down and worship. And then what do they do in verse 7? They obey. So Nebuchadnezzar takes this vision from the Lord. He twists it into his own idol. He sets this up 90 feet tall, made of solid gold in the presence of the people. And what does he command? He commands of all people to bow down. This really is phase two, this expectation of idolatry. And again, this is a golden image We don't see or experience a lot of golden images in our culture, although uh, images made of gold and bronze and other uh, precious metals are still prevalent in other parts of the world. But make no mistake, what is set up as idols in our culture, while we may not be able to walk up to them and touch them, it is just as much idolatry as someone bowing before this statue of Nebuchadnezzar made of gold. 
And this is what culture does. It demands eventually participation. Now, it seems as if this story, that this happens rather rapidly, and it does. It it obviously took him some time to build this image. It would take time to get the word out to everyone, but it's told in a very quick succession. We're intended to read this as if one thing happens after another, and it very often doesn't happen like that in our world. The move towards idolatry within a society, it's often slow. To go from phase one, where we see people twisting, the world twisting the image of God into, or the image of God's creation into something else, is, is pretty common. And then the next step eventually is so many people in the society, the people of the nations and the language, embrace it to the point where now it has become an expectation that you don't get to opt out. You must do what is being demanded of you. And if you don't, it leads to the third step where we see criticizing for rejecting idolatry. Look at verse, verses eight through 12. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you, and they do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So what we have here in this third step is direct accusation, direct uh, criticizing from one group towards another who is refusing the, the idolatry. And this specific group of accusers is the Chaldeans. Now, the Chaldeans were mentioned in chapter 1. They were mentioned in chapter 2. But I was saving a description of these people until chapter 3. They're kind of painted in chapter 1 and 2 as wise people. It was the Chaldean literature that Daniel and his companions were expected to learn. In chapter 2, when the Chaldeans couldn't interpret the the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, it was they who were going to be put to death. And here in chapter 3, they are the ones now accusing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego of not following the command of Nebuchadnezzar. So who are these people? Because this is a word that's used all the way back in Genesis in the Bible. If you remember, Abraham's father came from the land of Ur of the Chaldeans. The, the, the Chaldeans, a historic people there in Mesopotamia, were nomadic and warring tribe. They eventually, over the course of centuries, grew to be a very educated group of people, ultimately becoming in the empire of Babylon, almost an exchange. You could almost exchange Babylonian for Chaldean. Not that everyone was considered a Chaldean, but that the Chaldeans were considered to be the elite of the Babylonian empire. These are the educated elite. They probably made up the majority of the people in that ruling class that were called to the dedication of this idol. These are the people who are demanding on behalf of their king that everyone bow down. And here, these three upstart Jews. Now, make note, Daniel's never mentioned here. Somebody's going to come to me after and be like, what happened to Daniel? Daniel comes back in the next chapter. 
I don't know what happened, what, where Daniel is during this time. Daniel doesn't get caught up in this, but these three young boys do, who after chapter two have been placed in posi- prominent positions of authority. And these Chaldeans view these three Jewish boys as threats to them. And so they're using this as an opportunity to take out rivals and they go to the king and they criticize them and say, they are not doing what you have commanded. So in this face, we see the world represented there in the Chaldeans making accusations against the true followers of God. Do you notice here in the text, it says that some of the Jews... There are, verse 12, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province that are not bowing down. That tells us that there may have been some who were, that there were probably very likely some Jewish people who were exiled, who were caught up in those languages and tribes and nations who are bowing down. But at least these three were not. So they here in this story, representing the true followers of God and the world's elite are making accusations against them maliciously accusing them of failing to follow the order that the king has given to bow to idolatry, that the culture has embraced. Remember, everybody's bowed down. So we have this twisting of God's design into this false image worship. We have the culture, the society, even at threat, right, bowing down and embracing it. And we have this small group of people refusing. These, here in this story, it's only three. These three boys, young men at this point, refusing to bow down. And this is what the world does. The world will always accuse the true followers of God. The world is going to always look at us as if we are refusing to embrace that which they have embraced. Why in the world Christians act so surprised when people do this? It's beyond me. I think it speaks to the fact that we don't know our Bibles really well. Because listen, Christian, if you know your Bible really well, then it should be no surprise at all when people look down their nose at us and say, those backwards Christians, they believe the wrong things, they do the wrong things, they've embraced the wrong things. Why won't they think like us? Why won't they act like us? Why won't they affirm the things that, that we have affirmed that have become religion in our society? How quickly did worshiping this false image become religion in the Babylonian society? And listen, it's not just exclusive to the Babylonian empire and 21st century America. This is the way it has been throughout the course of history that the people of God will be accused of not doing what everyone else is doing. Because while the idol may change from one culture to the next, the accusations do not change. Now I've told you this is, this is intended to be seen as like progression, right? And this is the third step of four. So if you're wanting to know, if you're curious on the progression where I think in our culture, just to bring the text into our culture for a minute, where I think we are, if we were looking at a map of our culture right now, there would be a big pin in it that says, you are here, okay? That's that's where we are. 
Actually, we're just starting to take some steps into this next one. And, and that, that may frighten people. My goal is not to frighten you. Again, this is a story of hope, not of fear. The goal is not to frighten anybody, but as you just look out on the landscape of the culture in which we live, the society that we right now in the West find ourselves in, here's what we need to understand. Our world has embraced idolatry that is in direct opposition to Christianity. It has embraced a way of thinking that we as Bible-affirming believers cannot embrace And it has embraced it to the point now where it is demanding capitulation. It is demanding that we join in. And punishment is not far off because punishment is what is next for these boys. Punishing for refusing idolatry. Look at verses 13 through 15. Then Nebuchadnezzar in a furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the false image, the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Eventually, the fervor of culture demanding idolatry codifies it into law and seeks to destroy all who reject it. So these boys are brought in before the king who had exalted them to positions of authority. And it says in verse 13 that he is furious with rage. He brings them before and he says, you're going to have one more shot. We're going to play some music. And when we play that music, you're going to bow before my image that I have erected. And if you do not, then the fiery furnace is what awaits you. The fiery furnace is what awaits you if you refuse to bow down. Punishment. Now, we don't have fiery furnaces, at least yet, in our society. But societies throughout history have sought to punish in varying ways. Sometimes with fire. Babylonians weren't the only ones to do it. There were others. And here they are, faced with this choice. Do we obey what God has told us to do and bow before him alone? Or do we embrace the idolatry of our society? And do we give in to this pressure and threat of punishment? Do we bow or do we not? Christians today around our world are being asked this question. They're being asked in China to bow to communism. They're being asked in the Middle East to bow to Islam. And we are being asked in the West to bow to secular humanism. The idols look different, but the command is the same. Bow to that which society has embraced as truth. And ultimately what it leads to and has already led to in some of those examples is direct punishment. The inability to Enjoy life and to worship in your way, the way that God has commanded us. But to be told at the threat of death, you will bow down or you will pay the price. Now, if that is what is before us, if it is true, if my assessment is true and we are out of, coming out of the third and into the fourth, if this really is our you are here moment, then what are we to do? Because so far, this has been kind of depressing. Well, fortunately, 
The second half of this chapter gives us such an encouraging, hope-inspiring example to follow where we see faithfulness during the demand of idolatry. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are faced with a choice. Give in, capitulate, bow down before this idol, or live faithfully. And what these young men choose to do is live faithfully under pressure. Look at 16 through 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hands, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. These young men take an unbelievable stand. They are looking at the most powerful ruler of, at that point, the known world. And they said, no. God will either protect us or he won't. You notice they don't demand of God protection. They say, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. And then verse 18, but if not, be it known, we're still not going to do it. God's either going to save us because we don't bow down or he won't. And we're still not going to bow down. This is the, this is the faithful stand under pressure that these young men take. See, church, historically, the idols that believers have been punished for refusing to bow down to have been things like tyrants and dictators and empires, wicked religions, and even false expressions of Christ's church throughout the church age. Christian history is full of true believers facing the fires of this world, refusing to bow down, refusing to give in, living obediently and saying, I'm going to do what God has said. So here's the question before us. Is that too much to expect? Would I really do what these young men did? Here's the answer. I asked, I posed that question at the beginning. Here's my answer. Here's where I have landed. In my flesh, no. If I am left up to my own weak-willed flesh, I would bow down to the image. And listen, if you were left to your weak-willed flesh, so would you. But God is able to do something in and through those whom his Holy Spirit has indwelled that goes far beyond our weak-willed flesh. Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7 concerning idolatry. He says, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's a reference to what you studied in small group last Sunday. The people of God worshiping, of creating for themselves a false God in the wilderness. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happen to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. This is the warning of Paul in verse 12. He says, if you think your flesh is strong enough, I may have offended some of you when I said in your weak-willed flesh, you wouldn't have. Listen, Paul's saying the same. He's agreeing with me, okay? Let anyone who thinks he, he stands take heed lest he fall. Verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. 
God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. You've heard the phrase, well, God will never give you more than you can handle. Looks like that is an unbiblical phrase. If you say that regularly, don't say that. It's not in the Bible. Where we get that from is a twisting of what Paul's saying here. Here's what Paul's saying here. God will not give you more than he can handle through you. That's what Paul's saying. That the temptations that we may face to, to give in to the pressures, the idolic pressures of our culture are no different than the temptations faced by other Christians and other people of God throughout the ages. That's why he says, no temptation is overtaking you except that which is common to man. But who is faithful? God is faithful. And so because God is faithful, we are able to flee idolatry. We are able to join in the legacy of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and say, we will not bow down. I've thought all week there's a million examples and I want to do one that's going to seem a little close to home, even though it's not. And it's close to home because the next town up from here, well, two towns, I guess, up from here, is a little town called Smithfield. Now, we all know of Smithfield as the place that Ham comes from, right? I mean, that's right. It's okay. He can answer. Ham is great, right? We like Smithfield Ham. It's great. You know, you go up there, it's nice in the spring and summertime. You can walk around, get ice cream, count the pigs, all the things that you can do in Smithfield. But do you know where th that that's not the original Smithfield, right? The original Smithfield was an area in London. And do you know what that Smithfield was known for? It was not known for ham. It was known for burning Christians at the stake as heretics. It actually existed for centuries as a place where uh, where enemies of the crown were burned. William Wallace, the Braveheart guy, right, in 1305 was executed in Smithfield. But in the 15th and 16th century, during the Reformation that I'm teaching about on Wednesday nights, it was the place where dozens and dozens of English reformers were burned at the stake for denying the teachings of the Church of England. First, the Catholic Church, and then eventually the Church of England. You could go and get a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs and read about the fires of Smithfield where dozens upon dozens of faithful Christians stood on the word of God and said, we will not bow down. And they went into the fires and gave their life for that which they believed to be true. And this year around our world, Thousands of Christians, West Africa, South Asia, East Asia, the Middle East, maybe even here in America, will give their lives for that which they believe to be true. They will say, we will not bow down. Practicing faithful obedience to the word of God, even under great pressure. But know this, the Lord is faithful in the fire. Look at the rest of this chapter. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his faith was changed against Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. I have no idea how it was usually heated, but I'm imagining seven times is real hot. 
And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them in the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown to the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then the king was astonished and rose up in haste and declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound in the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. And he answered to them and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Now we're to the good part. These faithful young men refused to bow down and he says, all right, boys, heat that thing up. So much so that the people that threw him in died from it. I've always wondered about what those guys thought, right? Like as a kid, I was like, man, the the most unfortunate people in this whole story are those guys. Because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had nothing to fear. Even if the fires killed them, they had nothing to fear. Stop living in fear. The worst this world can do to us is kill us. And for a Christian, that ain't bad. It's the worst they could do. They said, throw us in. And they threw us in. And the king then exclaims, wait a second. There's not three guys in that fire. There's four. There's four guys. Why are there four guys in this fire? We only threw in three. Didn't we only throw in three? Yes, king, we only threw in three. Then why is it that I see four? Why is it that none of them are burned? Why is it that the fourth appears, as the ESV says, like the son of the gods? Now, there's varying interpretations throughout time of who this person is. Some say it's an angel. Some say it's a specific angel. Listen, there are numerous places in the Old Testament where we can look and see what is known as the pre-incarnate Christ uh, theophany, an appearance of God in bodily form. And there are times in those where I've preached some of them where I'm like, I'm not sure if this is a pre-incarnate Christ or just an angel of God. Of all of them in the Old Testament, the one that I am most sure is Jesus is this one. Now, I can't prove that to you from the text, but here's what I know in my heart. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went into the fire and they met Jesus in the fire. And the words of Isaiah 43 became true to them. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Jesus was with them in the fire. Hear me, church. The Lord is faithful no matter the fires of this world we may face. No matter what it is, this world says they can do to us. None of it matters in the face of what one commentator called the fellowship of the flame. In this fire, these boys see eye to eye with the God they chose to be obedient to and not bow down. Then the story concludes with the Lord exalted over idols. Verse 26, then Nebuchadnezzar came to the door of the burning fiery furnace and declared Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's counselors gathered together and saw the fire not had any power over their bodies of the men. Their hair of their heads were not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him, and who set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except 
their own God. Now just stop there for a moment and see what happens. Because of the faithfulness of the Lord, God is exalted over the idols of this world. Doesn't always happen right away. Again, in this story, it seems like these things are happening one time after another. It does not always happen that way throughout human history, but eventually, eventually, the cycle becomes complete and the gods of this world fall. You know, Nebuchadnezzar's golden statue is nowhere to be found today. It fell before the most high God of the universe. And every false image and every false teaching that is embraced in our world will one day, if it has already not, fall before God because the Lord is always exalted over idols. Pick up in verse 29. Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speak against anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruin. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Not only is the Lord exalted over idols, but because of the Lord's exaltation, his people are also exalted. Now, in this story, they're exalted in an earthly sense. Because of their faithfulness to the Lord, they are exalted publicly before people. Those Christian labeled as heretics who died in the fires of Smithfield were not saved from those fires. <laughs> but their legacy has now gone on for centuries, exalted over those who killed them. The same is true for all who give their lives, refusing to bow down to the ways and idolatry of this world. God, either in this life or in the next, exalts those who are faithful to him. So what? Jesus, our ever-present Savior, is always with us as we resist idolatry and endure the fires of this world for his glory. The command of Scripture is clear. Maybe the most prominent command, the most prominent imperative of all of Scripture, meaning it's mentioned more than nearly everything else, as far as a command, is flee from idolatry. Have no other gods before me. Make for yourself no graven images. Flee from idolatry. And that is the expectation of us today. Whether it is a golden statue erected by our culture or it is some other thought or way of thinking that the world has embraced that says to us, come and worship that which God has made instead of that which is God. And it is the command to every believer in Jesus that we would resist. And when we do, the fires of this world come, and when the fires of this world come, we can stand firm on this truth. Jesus, our ever-present Savior, is always with us. A couple of weeks ago when I was introducing Daniel chapter 1, we went to 1 Peter chapter 1 and looked at those New Testament Christians that Peter called elect exiles, even though they had always lived in that one little place. Because of their faith, they are now exiles even in their own home. His next command to them, listen to it. This is verse 6 and 6 through 8 of 1 Peter chapter 1. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believed in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walked into the furnace. 
not knowing if God would save their physical bodies, but knowing that God would save their souls. Generation after generation of faithful believers have followed in that example. Obedient to God, refusing to bow down of the ways of this world. And we are called to do the same thing. We walk through these fires with those young Jewish boys. We walk through those fires with the elect exiles that Peter writes to. Whether figuratively or literally, Jesus is with us. Jesus is with us, meaning we have nothing to fear. Now, let me, let me, I want to close, but, but I want to close in a little, little different way than normal. The, the point of the message is Jesus is with you. Don't give into idolatry. Don't give into the world. Jesus is with you. He will endure the fires with you. Sometimes I wonder if we think certain things are idols that aren't. Sometimes I wonder if Christians really have an understanding of what idolatry in our own lives really looks like. And this is really a lot of what my own personal exploration in this text has been about. Lord, there's nobody asking me to bow down to a golden image right now. But what is my world asking me to bow down to? And what pressures of the world are actually idols for the church and what pressures of the world aren't actually idols for the church? There are times that people will claim the fires of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for things that aren't really idols of this world. And then there are times that we will readily bow down, failing to follow the instructions of the Lord. Now, I don't have all of the answers for this. I don't have all the answers for this in my life, but here's what I know. After studying this text all week like this, I, I am convinced of this. We need to regularly take stock and ask the question, God, are there things in my life that I'm bowing down to? Is, is there some sort of financial situation, some sort of cultural pressure? Is, is, there, is there a way of thinking that I have capitulated to and, and I am now bowing down to when you would have me not? Lord, would you show that in my life? Christian, I think that's a prayer that we ought to pray regularly. God, would you show me the idols in my life and not let me focus so much on those that I'm not bowing down to that the world is pressuring me into, but what about the ones that I am and don't even realize it? You see, most of the time, they're not going to be a 90-foot statue that we could go, that's idolatry. Oh, so many, off, so many times it's going to be something else altogether and it sneaks up on us. And we miss it. So church, can we just end there with a prayer that God would reveal idols in our lives and tell us to take a firm stand, not to give in, because Jesus is with us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that no matter what we face in this world, Jesus is with us. He was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace all the centuries ago. He was with the martyrs who gave their lives for the truth of the gospel, and he is with us today. He is with those around the world who are facing persecution and sword, and he is with us. But God, will you show us places where we have given in, where we have bowed down, where we have allowed the thinking and the way of the world to take over, and we haven't even recognized it? Show us our idols, oh God, and let us be rid of them standing in faith, knowing that you and you alone are faithful to us in our darkest moments 
in the fires of this world. Thank you for that. We worship you now because of it in Christ's name. Amen. That's what I'll invite you to do now, church. Let's stand and worship the Lord with us in the fire.